uh, to talk to them and to talk to you today. And let's go before our God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us and for speaking to us as children. I pray that you would give us insight into your word. pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that you give us humility. pray that as we seek to understand your grace and apply it, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts. Be with me as I speak. Be with your people as we all hear. Do your work and be praised in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Reformation Day is coming, and I'm a little bit odd in that I really liked Reformation Day even when I was a kid. I went to a Christian Reformed church, uh, which is to say it's uh, one of the Dutch Reformed churches, and I grew up there with things like Calvin's Cadets and Calvinettes, which were the Calvinist version of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and Reformation Day, they would try to not celebrate Halloween, and so we'd dress up like uh, reformers and things like that. But what I really loved was coming together uh, with several churches in in the uh, high school auditorium, and we would have a service. And for some reason, as a kid, I really loved it. And I remember loving singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God with many more voices than normal uh, and doing that very loudly. Um, amen. Reformation Day is an exciting day, and I do want to say we're mainly here to look at the Word of God, but we have a great heritage as, as a Reformed church, and Presbyterian is just the English version of, uh, of Reformed. Uh, and there's some wonderful stuff that we're looking at. Uh, we're in a series where we're looking at five of the the summaries of the teachings of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus or sola Christo, either uh, Christ alone or through Christ alone, and soli deo gloria. And today we're looking at the point sola gratia. This is a hugely important teaching of the church. And uh, when you look at church history, I'm convinced that if you open your church history textbook, if it was written by somebody who had a, a clear view of what was going on, you can open your, your uh, church history book, put your finger on it, read a few sentences, and assume that the church is going to fail within the next four or five pages. Uh, we sometimes think that the church kind of went on, and then there was a really bad time, and then it got better, and things are mostly good. But if we look at the the history of the church, it was rough. Early on, you had the apostles. Read 1 Corinthians. Uh, there was a lot going on in the church that wasn't right. And then the apostles were gone, and there was a tendency to abandon their teaching and to go toward a moralism and to come up with creative ways to interpret the scriptures that really didn't uh, go along with the intent of the passages. And yet God was faithful, and yet God worked. And you have some, definitely some high points and some good throughout the church. And that's true even in the, the time of 
the Reformation. It's not like there were no Christians and suddenly there were. But when you look at the church in the 1500s, 1400s, etc., the church was a mess. And I've been doing some reading in church history, and once you get past Constantine and church and state sort of get mingled, there's this horrible pattern of political leaders having authority in the church and abusing it. And so a few of the things that you can read about that were going on in the church of the 1500s was you had a terrible pope who had many children, despite that he was supposed to be the pinnacle of purity and holiness and celibacy. Uh, And you had a 12-year-old cardinal. Now, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, you have your priest. Then above the priest, you have a bishop. Above the bishop, you have an archbishop. Above the archbishops, you have a very few cardinals. And the pope of the time turned to his 12-year-old nephew, uh, who was also, I believe, a count, and said, you get to be a cardinal. Uh, You had the sale of indulgences, meaning you could pay money and be absolved of sin. And that was not used typically in a a kind of noble way. It was, oh, you're going to do some sins. Well, pay us some money. It'll all be fine. Now, you can also get the idea that the whole church was like that, but there were many who sought to reform the church. And one interesting uh, example of this is Queen Isabel of Spain. And you might remember her name from... Uh, Isabel and Ferdinand were the ones that said, uh, everyone else thinks you're crazy, Mr. Columbus. We'll let you sail under our flag. Uh, And uh, she was someone who cared deeply about the purity of the church. And she worked very hard to purify its scholarship and its practice. And I'm not here to condemn her. I don't know her heart. There are things that she did that were wonderful. But the kind of purity she sought, and many others in the church sought, was a moral purity. And part of that was bringing in the Inquisition. And there was a terror to the purifying of the church. Martin Luther was different. And there were others who came before who who did this as well, who said, we don't need to just purify the practice of the church. We need to purify its teaching. And in looking at the scriptures, he said, it's by grace alone that we're saved. It's not by trying harder. It's not by paying money. It's not by doing acts of contrition. That is, going up the stairs on your knees until they're bloody to show that you are worthy. Martin Luther and others said it is by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, one interesting thing, as as the world reflects on the Reformation, uh, there was an article in Christianity Today written by a modern bishop, and this was this April. Uh, his name is Bishop Barron. 
And he writes this, along with many others in the early 16th century, Luther saw this danger in the life of the church, and so he cried out with true prophetic vigor on behalf of grace. In doing so, he was echoing his spiritual father, St. Augustine, who many centuries before had contended against Pelagius himself. And it goes without saying that we need this protest, especially today when it is taken for granted in our radically secular society that we believe that we can not only save ourselves, but even invent the means, uh, the meaning in our lives. For this witness, the entire Christian family owes Martin Luther an enormous debt of gratitude. And listen to this. And if he had limited himself to saying, gratia prima, prima, gratia prima, grace first, Luther might have effected a needed reform within Catholicism. The problem was he insisted on gratia sola, grace alone. And in a way, I think this bishop is right. If Martin Luther had just said, we're saved by grace mostly, he wouldn't have needed to break with the Catholic Church. And yet, how wrong that is. And we can ask the question, what would Paul have said to that? And I think we see something like that in our text today. And certainly we see something like that in the book of Galatians. Sometimes it's presented that, well, the Catholic Church said we're saved by works. And the Protestant Church says we're saved by grace. That's not really true. The Church has never said you are saved by working your way into heaven. But the Church has at times said it sure helps. And even the Pharisees didn't say that you are saved by working your way into heaven. They would have agreed. Well, you're saved by, by God, but, but the way you're a true Israelite is to do these things. And Paul's opponents, the Judaizers in Galatia, said not that you're saved by keeping the law, but that you're saved by Christ, but you need to keep the law in order to be a Christian. And if you're not keeping the law, either you're not being saved or you're not fully a Christian. In answer to that, Luther said we're saved by grace alone. And in our text today, we see clearly that Paul says it's not by works that we've been saved. We're saved by grace. And most of us here wouldn't contest that, that we, we wouldn't disagree with that doctrinally. We wouldn't say, Brandon, I, I, I think I, I believe that we're saved by, by works. I, I, don't, I don't think this is right. But when we live, I'm convinced that all of us, myself included, often live this way. We like the idea of grace first better. We like having a little bit of say in things. We like having a little bit uh, that we can say, I, part of this is mine. It's a little bit like when someone offers to pay for dinner. 
There's something in us that wants to say, no, 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 here, here, let me, let me do this. Let me, let me pay my part or let me take care of the tip. And we just don't, there's something in us uh, that doesn't like just receiving. Um, and the Reformation happened because Luther and, uh, Luther and others saw that we can only receive that we have nothing to give to God, that we have nothing uh, to contribute. Well, looking at our text, how does it start out? It answers the question, who we were. We were dead in sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgression. That's kind of a downer place to start on a a sermon about grace, but it's very true, and if we don't understand that, then we don't understand why we need to be so committed to grace alone and why it's only grace alone that will save us. Uh, Quite a long time ago, I had heard of a debate between Martin Luther and Erasmus, and I've been able to, to say, I know that Erasmus said his part. I haven't been able to Uh, find the quotation by Luther, but it's a great quote, even if he didn't actually say it. Um, And uh, I'm sure I wouldn't be the first to attribute to Luther things that he didn't actually say. But Luther and Erasmus apparently had to debate about grace, and uh, Erasmus says this on his, uh, his little pamphlet on the freedom of the will, and he talks about grace, and he says that grace is like a father helping a weak and sick child to the reward of an apple. And he says that this child wants to get to the apple, but on account of his weakness, he would have fallen if the father hadn't held him up. If the father hadn't assisted him, if the father hadn't guided him, then the child couldn't have done it. And that's a pretty good... uh, treatment of how at least much of the Catholic Church has treated grace, that grace is a supplement. Again, grace first. We need it. And I do want to clarify that I know Catholics who would say, no, 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 we're saved by grace alone. Uh, But officially, uh, the Church has taught that, yes, grace is, is necessary, but you have to take those steps. You have to do your part. And God's done most of it. God's gotten you started. God continues to assist you. But to say grace alone, that goes too far. Luther said, at least I think he said, no, it is God reaching down into a ring of fire rescuing a caterpillar. The problem is not that we're sick and need a little bit of help or a lot of help. The problem is that we are dead in sin. This is the language that we see in Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, we have Joshua the high priest standing before God. Israel needs a priest. There isn't one. And we read in Zechariah 3, the first few verses. 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not man, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. We get some interesting things there. The response is not, well, actually, Joshua's a pretty good guy, and he's, he's earned this. No. He's standing around in, in rags, and Satan is probably right in his accusation. And it's not based on Joshua, the high priest's righteousness, that God rebukes Satan. And where do these other righteous garments come from? They come from God. And we on the other side of the cross know that that comes to us because of what Christ did for us. Now we tend to think that we're not dead. We tend to think we're just a little sick. And if we look at our culture, what do we need? We need more knowledge. We need some education. And well, we need to get serious about things. And uh, I grew up in the 1980s and watched cartoons for most of the 1980s um, until I got video games. But uh, some of you might remember G.I. Joe and the 80s cartoon. And at the end, there was always this moral lesson that they would squeeze in. And after watching people shoot at other people and miss every time and things blow up. <clears throat> we would get this little lesson, and at the end it would say, knowing is half the battle. And we were supposed to walk away and be better people before it, because of it. And our culture takes this approach to just about everything, that what we lack is education. And that if only we educate people, then we'll end intolerance, we'll end teenage pregnancy, we'll end disease, uh, people will stop coughing and they'll, they'll cover their mouths. And What we need is education. We don't need a savior. We need to be educated. Or we need to do something and get serious about things. How often have you felt that God will be more pleased with you if you do your devotions a bit more? Or if you're a little bit less angry once in a while, or if you spend more time in prayer, or you go to church more, all those great things, but not how we're saved. Uh, Tim Keller says this, in all other religions, they say if you want to be saved, you must perform the truth and do good enough works, and earn your way into God's favor and love, and thus also 
into heaven. In other words, every religion other than biblical Christianity is about how to make God or the gods happy with you. Ephesians says, you can't do that. Uh, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following after the prince of the air. Uh, We were following after passions and we were seeking the wrong things uh now some of us have had the benefit of growing up in the church and we can say well that's you know that's not how i grew up reality is that's what we've all come from and where we would be without christ so first ephesians says you can't make god happy we're dead in sin The good news is it says you don't need to. We were saved by grace. And when we look at why God chose us, it's not because of something in us. What do we see in verse 4? But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We see that not just in the New Testament. We see that in the Old Testament. That's why I included this little part of Deuteronomy 7. Uh, was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, what that's not saying is that the Jews were dis- uh, especially despicable. No. They were just like everybody else. They were human. The Israelites, I should say. Uh, They were human. And they were not a world power. God could have looked at Babylon and said, you guys are great. You're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. You are going to be my chosen one. Uh, Jesus could have been born into the Caesar family. And Rome could have been God's choice. But God didn't want us to think it was because of our greatness. And so he chose the Israelites, a very human, uh, very ordinary people in some ways. And yet, as Romans says, heir to the promises, heir to the word of God, and blessed in many ways, But God's work in Israel shows that it is not human dignity or accomplishment that brought about his work. And in the same way, it's not because of something in our character or something that we've done that makes us acceptable for God. One of the ways that uh, Reformed theology differs than other Christian theologies uh, is the consistency in which we apply this. Most Christians will will affirm, without batting an eye, God is in total control. Uh, Most will say that, yeah, we can't come to God without his help. Um, Reformed theology, I think, has the benefit of being able to say it openly and consistently, and one of those, the teachings we have is total depravity. There is nothing in us 
acceptable to God in ourselves. And, as we see in Romans 3, no one seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there we would be if God didn't pull us out and give us life. Another part of that is unconditional election. This says that we are not Christians because God looked in the future and saw a choice we were going to make or saw some virtue in us that he didn't see in someone else. Uh, He looked at us and he saw the same despicable human nature that everyone else has. So why did God save us? Again, back to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. If we really understand the wretchedness of our own sin and sinful hearts, uh, we'll readily admit it's grace alone that can save us. And as we continue, we can ask the question of who God is. And what we see is God is merciful and gracious. Verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God saves us out of love. Not duty. Not a hesitating kind of, well... I suppose. I don't really want to, but Jesus, since you died for him, I guess. The Father looks on you, and the Word of God says he delights in you with singing. Not because we're beautiful, but because he's loving, and because we belong to him. We're his children. Uh, Now, there's a deeply held belief that goes along with what we've been talking about, that we need to kind of fix ourselves before we come to God. And Ephesians says, no, that's not true. One of the teachings of uh, the medieval church, uh, and I'll read it in Latin because my teacher made us learn this, even though I don't know any Latin at all, really. Teaching was facientibus quad inse est Deus non denegat gratium. To those who do what is in them, God denies not grace. Putting that into regular English, if you do your part, God will do his part and save you. And we get that uh, trickling through history Uh, into uh, Benjamin Franklin and his famous saying, God helps those who help themselves. That idea is a heresy, and it's a deadly one. Uh, The idea is not that we need to fix ourselves. We were dead. If we had to fix ourselves, we would go on trying to fix ourselves, and we would stay dead, and that would be the end of it. But Ephesians says, God had mercy on us when we were still sinners and wanted to save us and saved us because of his love. And in case we miss the point in verse 9, this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
So if we're saved by grace alone, what is grace? Well, we talk about two things in theology. We talk about mercy and we talk about grace, and they're very closely related. Mercy is God forgiving our sins and not punishing us like we deserve. In other words, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. And if we were weighed even on our best works, that would be true. But God is merciful. And he says, I'm not going to condemn you even though you deserve it. But grace goes a step further. Grace is God giving us the blessings and rewards that Jesus deserves for his life on earth. It is God's favor despite our guilt, shame, our corruption. It is a free gift. Now, because it is founded on Christ, because um, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me, this is not something God just sprinkles on everyone. We can't get the idea the world has a view that graciousness would mean that God would give it to everybody. Yes, we have to believe. But that, too, is is the grace of God. What do we see in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is not our own doing? You can say the grace is not our own doing, but really what Paul is saying here is the faith is not our own doing, and even our faith is a gift of God. Uh, And so we end up at the place with grace where the full benefits of Christ's death and resurrection have been applied to us, where your sin, no matter what it is, no matter what it is that's in the back of your mind that you might feel shame for, that I might feel shame for, God has taken that and it's forgiven. And in glory, when, Christ, when we come before the, the Father and the Son, it's not going to be, well, what have you got to show for your life on earth? Why should I let you in? It's going to be, welcome home. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That means we have nothing left to earn. It means we have nothing to add to our salvation. It means we can't add anything. And Satan will constantly whisper in your ear, you need to try a little harder or God's going to be angry with you. Now, lest we think that we're saved so that we can live however we please, Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes, we're created for good works. We do them out of gratitude. They are, as James says, a necessary fruit of a heart that's been transformed. But fruit doesn't make the tree grow. And our good works don't save us. And in Romans 6, Paul says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No. Yes, you're saved by grace, but you're united with Christ. And so we seek to live that way. 
Well, coming back to the question, we've looked at who we were as people dead in sin. We've looked at God and his grace and his mercy. And now we can ask, well, who are we now? We're a people saved by grace. How does this change us? As I've said, it's our nature to try to kind of finish things off and to to contribute to our salvation, either consciously or unconsciously. And we need to continually be reminded that we cannot do that. And so some of the best advice I can give is surrender. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to accomplish things and receive. And the great prayer that we have that Jesus said was a prayer of faith and salvation. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. In accepting that grace, we become empowered. Uh, it's, it's one of the ironies of the Christian life, that if we try to do things in our own strength, we're going to fail completely and totally. And if we admit our weaknesses, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And in that, we will find strength. We will find an end to guilt and shame. We've been saved by grace. We've received it. It's done. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation left for those who love God. It means there's no 5% that you need to accomplish. It means that when Satan accuses you of not deserving it, yes, he's right, I don't deserve it, but go away, Jesus died for me means there is a remarkable freedom and joy in this life despite suffering. That's something Paul talks about regularly, including in Ephesians. And it means that there's an incredible reward waiting for us. That despite whatever is happening in this life, we have an inheritance that Paul talks about earlier. We have... uh, We participate in the kingdom of God. In verse 6 of our text, we've been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so there is a great peace and joy in the knowledge that we are saved by grace alone. And it's also our great motivation for loving others. If we think we've been saved because we're better than someone, it's really hard to love somebody who you think is not as good as you. Um, Get your act together. Why are you struggling? If you were more like me, you'd be all right. And, of course, that's not true. But if we understand, I had nothing to do with my own salvation. Jesus can save you. 
but my sins are greater than you than you know. Well, so are mine. Uh, and if we believe that honestly, then we become uh, very compassionate, very kind, very ready to share our faith, and people will listen because they'll see that we're not standing above them, we're standing with them. And yes, we've been saved, but it's by grace. In this, we also have the ability to forgive others. If you have trouble forgiving someone, remember what you've been forgiven. And Jesus in Luke 7 talks about two people uh, who were forgiven. This is Luke 7, 41 and for following. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them do you think will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. If we understand what we've been forgiven, if we understand our grace, we'll love others, we'll be ready to forgive, we'll understand that I have nothing in myself that is worthy of condemning anyone else because I have nothing in myself worthy of receiving the gift that I have received. And of course, in conclusion, uh, verse 10, understanding the grace of God is our motivation for good works. Not done out of duty, but done out of delight and freedom and joy, knowing we have been given much and knowing that God loves us. As we close today, reflect on the grace of God, of where we were, of what God did for us, of what God is doing in us now, all by grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you had mercy on us. We don't deserve it. Lord, we deserve death. You gave life. We deserve condemnation. You have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Be with all of us in what we're going through now. In sickness, in struggle, in loneliness, in weakness, in futility. Be our strength. Show us grace and help us to receive that grace and to delight in it and through that to find strength and joy and peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.